Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very chilly good morning in Washington, D.C., where we're joined once again on the show by Yoon Jun Park. Uh, Yoon, if those of you who are not familiar, is the convener coordinator of the Chinese in Africa, Africans in China Research Network, and an adjunct professor of African in the African Studies program at Georgetown University. Yoon, welcome back to the program. Hi, thank you for having me again. Nice to talk to both of you. Wonderful. Well, we've invited Yoon back because of the really interesting economic news, what what Cobus has been calling the new normal in China. And really what's been happening over the past six months is a radical change in the relationship between China and Africa on the economic front. There's been a downturn in trade. There's been a downturn in investment uh, and a lot of things. And I'm going to let Cobus kind of go through what the new normal is. But the reason why we've asked Yun to come back is to talk about her specialty, which is the economic impact on migration and on the Chinese migrants who are already there. So before we get started, uh, let's go ahead, Cobus, and just kind of break down what is the new normal in China? Obviously, China is is rebalancing or re reshaping its economy at the moment, going from a from a, a very hard charging, fast growing manufacturing economy towards a more consumption based economy, which is growing at a slightly slower pace. Um, so, from the Chinese perspective, as far as we understand, a lot of that was a necessary step, um, and a lot of it is a kind of a normalization. Um, I say as we understand because obviously, you know, kind of the Chinese economy is mysterious and it's not always someone is not always 100% sure exactly what's going on uh, behind the scenes. Um, on the African side, these changes have been a bit like an earthquake. Um, so uh, when China was focusing on manufacturing, it used a ton of, of, China, of African raw materials. Um, and it imported a lot of African oil, African metals, um, um, coal, and so on. Um, now, a lot of those prices are falling. China isn't nearly importing as much as they used to. And at the same time, due to fluctuations in the economy, the, the Chinese currency has been devalued, which means that Chinese exports to Africa are much cheaper. So there is this, this kind of complicated situation that African economies face where they can't sell to China what they were selling before. Yet, at the same time, they now also owe China a whole lot of money. Um, and Frequently, that money, those loans were written on the back of commodity sales. So they were supposed to pay back the loans through commodities. So it's one thing when you're dealing with oil at $90 a barrel. It's a very different thing when you're dealing with oil at $30 a barrel. Um, So all of these questions are suddenly throwing not only China-Africa relations into a new light, but also the, the Africa rising story as a whole. So if Africa was essentially rising on the back of Chinese demand for African commodities, now that Chinese demand is is growing soft, how, how much is Africa rising? Actually, and what what is the future of this of this narrative and of the relationship? Um, you, I don't know if I I think I oversimplified every single thing I said, um, but in in terms of of this kind of new normal situation, just as as a as a as a first big question, how do you see it starting to, and in what ways do you see it impact on on Chinese people in Africa? Actually, do you do you see any real changes so far? Well, I think when we talk about migration, we need to talk about both flows and stocks. And in terms of the flows of Chinese migrants into Africa, I think that has definitely slowed because of the um, economic 
circumstances that you just described. Um, the other thing that I've been hearing quite a bit is that um, many of the Chinese migrants who have been living in Africa have, are moving or they're considering leaving. Even, even some of those who've been in South Africa, for example, for close on 20 years now, are looking at other opportunities and other options because it's no longer as profitable to continue to stay in Africa because of, of, of these, um, the impact of China's economic slowdown on African economies. And this is particularly, particularly an issue in those countries that are, uh, that are uh, dependent on single commodities particularly oil and, and the, the other natural resources that you mentioned, or even if they're agricultural products, if they're dependent on sales to China and Chinese are no longer buying or buying at the same um, rates um, uh, and, and um, costs that they were paying before, then it, it's definitely having a, a tremendous impact. And as you know, those Chinese migrants who are living in those countries are feeling the same pinch as African citizens who live there. Well, you know, the Chinese population in Africa is a very diverse community, so there's a wide range of people who are there. One tranche of that population uh, is, is quite poor, for, them, for that matter. They're farmers in Zambia, they are small businesses in the DRC, and they can't leave even if they wanted to. So when you look at, simply because they don't have the resources to leave, so when you look at the broad swath of the Chinese migrant community across the continent, what percentage do you guess, because there's no way to tell for sure, uh, has the ability to leave versus those that are required to stay simply because they're either too invested, maybe they're married, or they uh, don't have the resources to leave, if, if, even if they wanted to? Yeah, that's a really, really good point, Eric. Um, and I think you're right. I think um, certainly most of the Chinese migrants that we interviewed in southern Africa, um, in Lesotho, in, in uh, Zimbabwe, um, South Africa, are um, kind of economic migrants, if you will. They're, they, they don't have huge um, pockets. Um, most of them took out loans from family or friends or, or possibly even um, migration brokers in order to travel and start their small businesses. And um, business is slow right now. They're, they're struggling. The um, people that I mentioned who are leaving or considering leaving are those who were more established, who um, actually did have some roots um, in, in these countries, but they also have the resources to start looking elsewhere. Um, I heard recently about um, some former colleagues who are, um, were on vacation in the U.S. and were starting to look um, at possible economic opportunities, um, property values, um, and the like, just starting to explore possible opportunities um, because it, it, it has been a struggle. And, um, but, but you're absolutely right. And again, in terms of... of um, percentages um, or proportions, it would be really, really hard to um, figure that out without the kind of research that's not yet being done um, and, and certainly would be really, really challenging to coordinate across 54 African countries. Um, but uh, my guess would be that, you know, a, a majority, uh, a probably a large majority of those Chinese who are independent migrants in China, in Africa today are of the first um, batch of, of those who um, don't have the kind of ex 
extraordinary resources or education um, or connections um, either in China or um, Africa to be able to um, pick up and leave very um, easily. So, Yun, these the group of them who are planning to leave, do you have any idea of, of where they're planning to leave to? Do, is it mostly hoping to leave to parts of the first world, which I can imagine would be difficult in certain cases because the economy is pretty flat in places like Europe as well? Or is it? Or are they making a sideways Not to mention Europe doesn't want any more. Cobus, not to mention Europe doesn't exactly. want any more immigrants, I mean, frankly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's the, the, all, all of those problems as well. Um, all of yeah. all of the different whole whole list of barriers facing the facing people who want to move to to the first world, but then also are, there, are some of them planning to make a horizontal move to to a different part of the developing world or a different part of Africa? Um, I it certainly um, moves to other African countries is always um, going to be easier than trying to get a visa and and move legally into um, Western countries or, or, you know, if you want to call it the first world or the more developed world. But as you guys both rightly point out, it's it's not so easy. And and that's one of the reasons why some of these people ended up in Africa in the first place, that they, you know, that they couldn't, um, either couldn't absolutely move or couldn't afford at the time to move. to uh, to to the U.S. or Australia or to Europe, um, I don't think that mood has changed in terms of the way the Western world, the um, the first world, developed world, ha- is um, kind of controlling in migration. Um, the restrictions are are are, are tight, and um, it, the mood generally in in these societies is very negative. If you look at the um, current refugee crisis in in uh, Europe. Um, you know, people are becoming more and more xenophobic as they um, get under pressure. So it's not going to be easy, um, but from what I've heard, um, certainly the, the few uh, anecdotal um, kind of evidence, um, bits of evidence that, that, that I've gathered, um, those with the uh, resources, um, and, and in the few cases that I'm thinking about, these are people with um, with degrees, with higher degrees, with um, lots of um, experience under their belt, um, might be able to do it. But it's a very small handful who would successfully be able to make those transitions into um, into uh, the U.S., um, Europe, or Australia, for example. I guess the most obvious question is that people may raise is, well, why don't they go home? And the problem with going home is that there's not a lot of work in China today. I mean, we're talking about a dramatic economic slowdown to 1% to 2% economic growth in some areas. That is, if you believe the Chinese government, it's 6.97%. But there's very few analysts out there that actually believe that the Chinese economy is growing that, 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 that fast. And there's been this now in China, and Jonah Kessel from the New York Times has done some fantastic reporting on this, reverse migrations from the Chinese cities back to the countryside. So it's not like there's a lot of opportunity waiting for these people back home. And then when we step back a little bit, as you alluded to, Yoon, the kind of global migration picture right now is very much in flux. We're seeing a rise of anti-migrant populism in the United States, articulated best by Donald Trump, uh, Marine Le Pen in France, the rise of the, uh, you know, the, Dem- the Swedish Democrats in Sweden. Uh, in Germany, there's uh, Pagida. And so it's a very, very difficult situation for migrants to find out where they would go. So 
my, my guess, my first assumption is that they would go to other African countries, which is probably South Africa, because that's where most migrants seem to go because it has the most mature economy. Where in Africa would you start to see the migratory trends happen if it was, in fact, that they are actually going to stay on the continent? I, I, I think people, uh, pl- certainly places like South Africa, but, you know, as you both know, South Africa is not a very warm and inviting place for foreigners either. Um, there have been continuing outbursts of xenophobic violence. Um, up to now, not targeting Chinese in particular, but that could change um, as, as um, political and economic conditions worsen, if, um, and, and uh, certainly under Zuma's leadership, things haven't been looking very rosy. Um, and from what I hear, about my former home, it's um, it's it's uh, it's uh, quite uh, stressful and and uh, difficult place to be right now. Um, I would think other countries would be countries that um, you know might not be doing uh, might not be the best places to live. Certainly not the easiest places to live, but where there are opportunities. So um, my sense, um, certainly in the last decade, is that there are large numbers of of Chinese um, in places like Angola. Um, in um, the DRC, um, where because of uh, the mineral resources, but also because of the um, kind of rapid kind of redevelopment um, in in post-conflict areas, there are huge opportunities for those Chinese who are willing to take those kinds of risks. Um, And these are risks that, you know, include... um, you know, sometimes very challenging uh, safety and security uh, conditions, um, and uh, as well as difficult uh, living um, circumstances. And and um, from what I gather, um, it's, they're neither are very cheap places to live. Um, so it would certainly take a certain type of migrant. Um, also, wanted to go back to something. Uh, Eric, that you said earlier um, in terms of the wide variety of Chinese migrants. Now, this is something that I've been trying to get across in, in my writing um, and, and oftentimes gets glossed over. People say, oh, my goodness, there are a million Chinese in Africa. You know, what does that mean? And, and there's a tendency to kind of gloss over and, and, and see these people as a, a single unit when, in fact, you have people as um, uh, a, a kind of different, as you know, kind of different species. They come from all across China. There are people who um, only went to third or fourth grade um, uh, primary school. Others who have graduate degrees. People who are coming from rural areas, or um, and and people who are um, uh, kind of have have migrated several times within China. So they are. Um, were internal migrants be- before they they decided to venture overseas, and then you've got people with you know kind of full on um, you know professional degrees working for international um, accounting firms who, you know who are coming from Beijing and Shanghai and Hong Kong. So there's this wide range of migrants and and these kinds of shifting economic circumstances, um, the context affects them differently. Um, I think certainly the amount of, of capital, actual capital, but also social capital, um, makes a huge difference in terms of how these individual migrants can withstand and adapt and survive um, more increasingly difficult 
circumstances. Kobush, let me come to you very quickly to talk about some of the xenophobic issues that Yoon brought up in South Africa. If you recall, I think it was last year or maybe about 18 months ago, Durban uh, was overwhelmed with a spate of xenophobic violence, not particularly directed against the Chinese, although some Chinese shops were affected. But, you know, these tensions, these ethnic tensions are very, very close to the surface, not just in South Africa, but also in Uganda and some other places. And as the economies start to sour, I think it will be very tempting for certain politicians to kind of do what, what's happening, frankly, in the United States and in Europe by saying, well, it's not our fault, it's their fault. And the Chinese make a very good target in part because they don't have a constituency that can fight back and that can talk back and that is well organized. And so I'm wondering if you think this economic downturn continues and the trade flows fall off as much as they have and the investment falls off as much as it has and continues to go downwards. Do you think the Chinese could be turned from being this great friend to actually being a political pawn for an opposition politician to rally on? Well, we've already seen, uh, you know, kind of, especially in Zambia, we've seen attempts by politicians to try and do that. Um, you know, kind of, and, and also in, in the case of, of Michael Sata in Zambia a few years ago, the attempt to try and fuse th- these two concepts, you know, China as a, as a state, China as a country, and then also Chinese, actual Chinese people on the streets, to try and fuse them into one unit, unified kind of, boogeyman um and you know kind of, i can well imagine that that there is the danger of that happening again on the other hand you know kind of the it, i think it, it would also depend a lot on what the chinese government does um and at the moment the chinese government is is a bit of a difficult you know actor to kind of get a get a bead on in this particular case because they just listening to the Chinese government, everything is up, 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 win, win, win. Everything sounds great, right? Kind of say there isn't there isn't a lot of so far a lot of acknowledgement of 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 the economic changes, um, and certainly no no real acknowledgement that that the the change in the Chinese economy is negatively affecting the African economies. Um, so you know, kind of whether that's going to lead to some resentment is an issue. The second issue is. What you know, kind of what a, a newly um, active Chinese state is going to do about it? Um, because obviously, in the past, you know, China was constrained in acting in Africa by by its non-intervention policy. Now they're building a, this this big um, military facility in Djibouti, um, and they they now also have a track record of doing both peacekeeping and of actually rescuing Chinese people out of of troubled African countries. So you know, kind of all of this seems to be, you know, kind of, we, we might well be heading in a direction where both of those different, those two trends, a trend towards, trend towards blaming China and then a trend, a trend towards China being more interventionist, meeting in some kind of crazy way. Mm. Um, you know, I don't want to make any predictions about that, but I think those are both trends that one needs to to look out for. Um, you, what, what do you think? Like, how, how do you think this, this interface between the Chinese government and t- actual Chinese migrants is going to play out in the future in Africa? Um, well, I think a number of, of those of us who, who look at Chinese migration um, have, have said this before, but there's, um, there's, there's not necessarily a strong relationship between the vast majority of Chinese migrants in Africa and, the, and, and kind of official China, the Chinese embassies and consulates that are based in these countries. Um, I think there definitely is um, an issue of um, 
in in the literature what's been named um, shuji. Um, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, um, but um, issues around class um, and and kind of uh, good Chinese and 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 kind of bad Chinese. Those Chinese, those poor Chinese who are embarrassing to the state, um, and so. Many of the Chinese migrants who we were talking about, who um, don't have a lot of resources, who don't have um, education, who don't have those kinds of backgrounds, are moving to China completely on their own. And oftentimes, um, the only time that they interact with the Chinese embassy is when they've, they they run into trouble. Um, Chinese ambassadors that I've interviewed in a number of countries um, and other Chinese officials often kind of, you know, throw their uh, hands on their heads and, and, and kind of, you know, smack their foreheads and say, oh my gosh, these Chinese, they're so embarrassing, they just cause trouble, you know, it's a hassle for us, it's, it kind of adds this extra burden to this job that we have already. Um, so that that's kind of the first point, there's no love loss between the Chinese, the official China um, and the Chinese migrants. Um, most Chinese migrants complain that they don't have any support, that, that those official Chinese China doesn't um, support them, doesn't engage with them at all. So it will be interesting to see. I mean, when push comes to shove, as happened in Libya, you know, if China would actually come out and support um, the Chinese migrants. We saw in 2008 with the xenophobic, um, the, the kind of huge outbursts of xenophobic violence in South Africa, that the Chinese consulate in Johannesburg um, did make an effort to kind of reach out um, to the best of its ability to um, Chinese community members and, and kind of warn them of potential dangers, telling them to keep their shops closed um, and um, trying to kind of cobble together a communication strategy to reach them. The problem is most of those Chinese migrants who are out there have never registered with the Chinese embassy. Most Chinese embassies don't know how many Chinese migrants are in a given country um, and don't have contacts for them. So they were using all forms of social media, texting, asking people to pass on messages and things like that. So we have seen that. Um, the other point that I wanted to make is that um, based on research that we did in, um, in Lesotho and in Zimbabwe and certainly in South Africa, um, African society in general is is able to differentiate and distinguish between China and the Chinese people that they interact with um, on the streets. Um, it was very clear to us that um, certainly in Zimbabwe where that um, the China Africa the China Zimbabwe relationship has been highly politicized because of Mugabe and Zanu PF's look east policy um, that the politicians did exactly what you were referring to um, in, in, in so far as, you know, they were trying to make China into the big boogeyman, right? Um, in, in addition to or sometimes in lieu of criticizing the government that they disagree with, they, 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 they attack China, who has close ties with a given government. Um, but in Zimbabwe, it was really, really interesting to, to talk to people and find out that, as far as they were concerned, China, kind of with the capital C, um, the state, um, and China's relationship with um, Mugabe, was very distinct from the Chinese people that they saw on the street who during the worst of the economic um, political crisis in the late 2000s 
were somehow able to get consumer goods into the country or had set up small um, factories to um, set, make and sell, you know, instead of dove soap, dove soap, doughway soap, right? <laughs> um, and get those products onto the shelves. And, and there was a sense that, that I got certainly from in-depth interviews as well as um, some surveys that there was a, a great appreciation, even admiration for these Chinese migrants who were, you know, so uh, ingenious and, and hardworking and, and kind of um, able to, to get these things on, on, on uh, shelves when some of the major retailers couldn't do that. So um, I do think that we need to give credit to um, African society um, and, and, um, and kind of allow for the fact that um, many times they can make these distinctions. That said, I do think that opposition parties um, uh, and, and other groups in uh, civil society groups um, can, sometimes very effectively, as, um, as um, Hobis mentioned in the case of, of um, Zambia, use this um, to their political advantage. I think we should probably expect that to happen only because it's what always happens and it's what's happening in other places and it's nothing unique to the Chinese. It's just immigrants and migrants are generally defenseless and it, it is a useful tool. One quick point to follow up, just as there's no love lost between the, the Chinese state and some of the Chinese migrants, um, there's not a lot of people don't understand either that there's not a lot of love lost among Chinese immigrants themselves. Oftentimes they really work hard to avoid each other. You know, people don't realize that oftentimes two Chinese people don't even speak the same language if they don't come from the same province, the same region. It's a very tribal culture. So there's not a lot of unanimity within the Chinese migrant community. Uh, and so that is a very diverse and fractured group as well. Um, um, I also think, sorry to interrupt you, I think there's also, we were also in a kind of a, a, a different new normal in the sense that the the role of media in all of this, you know, kind of is 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 taking it to a whole different level than I think than than kind of moments of of xenophobia before. You know, the way that people are represented, the way that they represent themselves, the role of social media, both in you know, kind of in in uh, encouraging xenophobic violence and stopping xenophobic violence and keeping you know kind of keep, keeping people safe and pushing them into danger i think is becoming a really big issue especially in africa because you know because african social media especially in the southern and the eastern you know kind of half uh, parts of the continent are, is, is developing so quickly um so i think you know kind of issues of, of representation um both by the press and by people themselves is is becoming a, a bigger bigger issue um and you know kind of you actually yeah you know we you and i are working actually on a on a conference about this particular issue um and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and what that conference is going to be about and and how these issues are going to relate to it oh Thanks uh, for, for the opportunity to talk about um, the conference a little bit. So the um, Chinese in Africa, Africans in China Research Network um, has been trying to put on um, biannual conferences, um, and um, we've, we've hosted um, several already. Um, the fourth is going to take place um, in Nairobi um, on the 18th through the 20th of August um, this year. And um, the... The, the theme this year is um, Convergences and Divergences, Interdisciplinary Approaches to Media and Communications in the Africa-China Engagement. 
Um, now, as you both are, are, are well aware, and I'm sure most of your listeners are, that um, China in Africa discourses has is, is always been highly contested. The media um, plays a large role in this, and so we thought it was high time to um, focus a conference on not just media and communications, but, but broader issues around representation, perception, images of both um, Chinese in Africa, Africans in China. Um, we've got um, a call for papers that's out right now. Um, most of the panels uh, fit into kind of several broader thematic areas. The first is race, perception, culture, and representation. The second focus specifically on media practices and practitioners in China, Africa, engagement, and the third theme generally is politics, public policy, and diplomacy. These conferences are small, um, usually about 50 to 60 people, um, all active participants um, um, with um, no um, parallel sessions, but, but with kind of all of the participants kind of going together from from one session to another. So it means that it's by necessity small, but focus where people are bringing their own research on these things, and hopefully at the end of the day we'll have um, at least a couple publications that come out of it. The other thing is um, with these conferences, um, we always try to host some kind of public event. So um, in this year our um, local partners um, are the um, the School of Media and Communications at the new Aga Khan University in uh, in Kenya. Um, and we have a number of other um, partners. But um, as I said, the um, call for papers is out. We're looking for people who are focused on um, their research in these areas. And we're going to hope to, um, in the process, in the aftermath of this conference, hopefully um, have um, some idea of, of how we can improve um, the, the kind of relations and, and, and communications and flow of information between the scholars who are doing this research on the ground and a lot of the people who are reporting on it, you know, writing about it um, in, in a more kind of um, public way than, um, than academics. So if, some, um, uh, if somebody in our, in, who's listening to this uh, either wants to contribute a paper or to participate and attend the conference, is there anywhere they can go online to find out more information or someone they should contact? So hopefully by the end of the weekend, we're going to have um, the call for papers uploaded onto the, um, the China Africa Knowledge Project um, website. Um, we can certainly share that call um, for you guys if you'd, be, um, if, if you'd want to post it. Um, people can also just send um, information to um, uh, our conference website, or sorry, conference email, um, and um, we, one of us would be happy to uh, get back um, to them. Um, at the moment, Kobus, um, myself, and um, Bob Wikeza, who is also um, at WITS right now as a postdoctoral fellow, are the um, main uh, folks um, involved in the um, organizing committee. The email is Nairobi, C-A-A-C, 2016, at gmail.com. There you go. Nairobi, C-A-A-C, 2016, at gmail.com. Also, That's just right. for people, if they want to find out more about the Chinese in Africa, Africans in China Research Network, they have a wonderful website at china-africa.ssrc.org. 
I know that sounds like a lot. We will put links to this all in the show notes on this page uh, during the, for the podcast page, so you can click over to that. So we'll have information as well for, for people to follow through. Yoon, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, we really appreciate the time, and we wish you the best of luck in organizing the conference. It's a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Yoon is a uh, adjunct professor of, in the African Studies program at Georgetown University and the convener coordinator in the Chinese in Africa, Africans in China Research Network, and among the leading scholars on uh, Chinese migration in Africa. And she's been uh, now a regular guest on the show, so we appreciate her uh, coming by. Hey, Kobus, if people want to follow what you're doing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? You can find me on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And there we we curate the steady drip of China Africa news items. So it's basically a 24-hour um, curated news feed of China Africa news news items landing on your timeline. I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And for those of you who use Android phones, which is most of you, I presume, uh, we have a brand new Android app. Uh, so excited. If you want to, that's a great way to follow the show. Just go to the Google Play Store, type in China Africa Project, and our new brand spanking new Android app will come up. You can listen to the show. Uh, you can download it, I think, but you can also stream it. Uh, and that's great for Android. We have iOS and Windows. Windows coming out very shortly. And if you want to find this podcast in the iTunes store, just go to www.itunes.com slash China Africa podcast, and it will take you right to the iTunes page. Uh, and you can subscribe there. And we would be so grateful if you leave a comment or a rating because it makes it so much easier for people to find us in the future. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>